Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Bronze Age. Episode 1, Gadesh. Let me start by setting the scene. It's a hot, sunny day, sometime in late May, 1274 BC. Near what we now know as the border between Lebanon and Syria, two massive armies inch closer and closer and closer to a bloody, protracted clash that will go down as one of the most important battles in world history. Now, when you think of important historical battles, if you're one of those people that happens to think of important historical battles, your mind probably drifts to the more universally famous ones. Waterloo, Thermopylae, Hastings, Gettysburg, Stalingrad, Normandy, among others. For most of you listening, it's likely that Kadesh wouldn't ring a bell so much as elicit a shrug or a confused stare. But although the battle is little known to the general public, I am going to make the bold, probably foolhardy claim that the incident at Kadesh could quite probably contend for the title of most important battle in human history. No, that's not because of its outcome. It was a brutal quagmire, which cost both sides far more than they ever gained from the venture. But rather because of the fairly impressive first and largest titles granted to it. The Battle of Kadesh was, first, the largest chariot battle ever fought. Second, the earliest pitched battle in recorded history to be consistently well documented. Third, the source of the first surviving peace treaty, that's right, the literal first surviving peace treaty in human history, and finally, the best documented battle from the ancient world. Simply put, if there was a Guinness Book of World Records, but, you know, for war and bloodshed and all that gory stuff, the Battle of Kadesh would sweep the competition away easily. But wait, you might be saying, you haven't even told us who fought in this battle yet, and you're already claiming it was one of the most important in human history? And to that I say... Mea culpa. I was trying to stick a dramatic reveal in my script. The two forces that hacked each other to bits on that fine May morning were led, respectively, by the power of the Egyptian New Kingdom Ramesses II. You might know him as either Ramesses the Great, or that guy inexplicably portrayed by Joel Edgerton in the Ridley Scott Bible movie, and the Hittite Emperor Muatali II, who you know as nobody, because practically nobody ever talks about him. Now, to honestly understand why these two had a collective hissy fit in the middle of the desert, we're going to have to go back in time. Way back in time. Like, 276 years before the Battle of Kadesh even took place, to be exact. The year 1550 BC marked the end of the Second Intermediate Period in Egypt. Intermediate period being a fancy term in Egyptian historiography for what could better be described as a state of absolute political and economic chaos. For the previous hundred years, the native Egyptian monarchy had been usurped by foreign invaders known as the Hyksos. We'll be discussing them in future episodes, so for now, all you need to know is that the Hyksos likely originated from the Levant, they syncretized Canaanite and Egyptian customs in their practices, and, most importantly, they didn't control all of Egypt. Far from it, actually. The Hyksos rulers maintained a sort of loose control over a significant portion of northern Egypt, but for the entire century or so of their rule, they were in near-constant conflict with the rival 16th and 17th Egyptian dynasties based in Thebes to the south. 
Surprise, surprise, the Ixos' inability to subjugate their native rivals led to their own demise. The founder of the Thebes-based 18th dynasty, Atmos I, continued his father's war for control of Egypt and won, expelling the foreign dynasty and, for the first time in decades, reasserting native control over the whole country. And then he just kept on going. He didn't content himself with simply reunifying Egypt. Instead, he pushed down into Nubia, defeating several rebellions in the region and reasserting Egyptian rule over it. Then, he pushed up into the Levant, going on one or two campaigns which culminated in a three-year siege and eventual destruction of the town of Shiruhen, an Exos stronghold likely located in either the Negev Desert or Gaza. Now, before we continue, it's important to clarify something. Akmos' Levantine campaigns seem to have been born more out of the desire for revenge against the Hyksos than anything else. The Egyptian armies would destroy cities, take loot and slaves, and then they'd just leave. There was no attempt to establish any permanent military or political authority in the region. And indeed, for a while after Atmos' death, that seemed to be the official Egyptian policy. They were perfectly happy to stay along the Nile and had no real material interest whatsoever in seizing Levantine territories. And then Thutmose III showed up. The Egyptologist James Breasted didn't call this guy the Napoleon of Egypt for nothing. Thutmose was a doggedly determined, incredibly aggressive warrior pharaoh, who successfully and constantly expanded Egypt's borders during his 32-year-long independent reign. The wealthy and powerful Levant city-states almost immediately became a target of Thutmose's expansionist policy, and they were rightfully terrified of his wrath. I mean, this guy waged at least 17 wars during his entire reign, and practically won all of them. So, their forces unified under the command of the princes of Megiddo, and, coincidentally, the princes of Kadesh. This led to the legendary Battle of Megiddo, which, in all honesty, deserves at least an entire episode dedicated to it, but until then, here's a brief summary. Like the later Battle of Kadesh, Megiddo had a lot of firsts attached to it, including the first ever body count, yikes, and the first recorded use of the composite bow. The battle itself ended in a Levantine rout, and the respective armies were forced to flee into the city of Megiddo proper for safety as the Egyptians began a lengthy siege which, like the battle, ended in a victory for the forces of Thutmose. What really cemented this as a lasting victory for Thutmose was the fact that literally all the important Levantine leaders had brought their armies with them to Megiddo. He had them all at his mercy in one fell swoop. Instead of having to perhaps campaign for years all over the countryside, trying to slowly take city by city in grueling fashion, the war had essentially ended after one battle. It's no wonder that in his annals, the pharaoh remarked that the capturing of Megiddo is the capturing of a thousand towns. To quote James Weinstein's The Egyptian Empire in Palestine, The defeat of the combined enemy forces resulted in the king's effectively taking possession of all the towns opposing him. A brief aside, you might notice that I'm not mentioning any dates when it comes to Thutmose and the Battle of Megiddo. This is intentional. Given the murkiness of the Bronze Age's historical record, there is a very real and incredibly spirited debate over the years when major events and reigns occurred one which I have absolutely no real desire to step into. 
the so-called middle chronology, one of five separate chronologies which has been generally accepted as a way to date the Bronze Age, dates the campaign to April of 1457 BC. But the academic sources I'm referencing in this episode generally settle on a date of 1482, which means there's an entire 25-year gap between the two debated dates. To put that in perspective, over the past 25 years here in the U.S., we've had five different presidents. A lot changes in that kind of time frame. You're welcome to pick whichever chronology you prefer, whether it's long, middle, middle, low, short, or ultra short. All that matters is that at some point in the early to mid-1400s BC, Thutmose subjugated the Levant and extracted tribute from its leaders. Unlike the aftermath of the I's invasion, there were very few cities put to the torch, and Egyptian military and administrative outposts were constructed in the region following the campaign, though most influence the new kingdom exerted over their new tributes was political and economic, only rarely requiring the use of the sword. And for the next century, things carried on much in that same fashion. By the reign of the pharaoh Akhenaten, the Egyptian military presence in the Levant had depleted to only a limited number of garrisons which served in a largely inoffensive fashion, halting disputes between the regional cities beating back troublesome elements, and facilitating trade. But then, as it usually does, disaster struck. The Hittites, a group of epic gamers originating in Anatolia, which had happened to forge one of the largest empires in the Mediterranean, began to slowly encroach upon Egyptian territory with their allies, seizing chunks of northern and western Syria. Akhenaten's rather poorly documented attempts to push back the Hittites met with little success, and from the evidence available to us, the loss of control over the Syrian coast probably had quite the negative impact on Egypt's foreign trade. The slow, seemingly irreversible decline of Egyptian power outside Africa continued under Akhenaten's son, the infamous Tutankhamun, and his own successor slash granduncle slash grandfather-in-law, I. As always, Egyptian royal bloodlines would even terrify George R.R. R. Martin. And then there went the 18th dynasty. I promise we'll get to the actual battle soon. Sometime around the 1290s BC, Ramesses I, the grandfather of the Ramesses, that I promise, pinky promise, is going to show up at some point in this episode, took power and started Egypt's glorious, totally insane 19th dynasty. There was no civil war or anything to determine succession. The last pharaoh of the 18th dynasty, Horemheb, simply had no surviving heirs, and realizing that his effective vizier Ramesses had not only a son, but also a grandson, gave him the gig upon his death. If you're at all familiar with Byzantine history, the rise of Emperor Justin I, the uncle of Justinian the Great, is similar to Ramesses I's ascension, with all the airless monarch gives power to a trusted advisor whose reign helps establish the more celebrated one of their young descendant. What's important about Ramses I's reign is that it represents a sort of reinvigoration of the Egyptian martial spirit, the same Egyptian martial spirit which had been on a noticeable, seemingly irreversible decline prior to the rise of the 19th dynasty. Ramses' son, the future pharaoh Seti I, was a figure in the true Thutmosean mold of a warrior king, and when his father told him to take back Syria, he raised an army and 
guess what? The man took back Syria. He raised an army, marched up north, and beat the Hittite force stationed there six ways to Sunday. I should probably mention at this point that the original Ramesses is dead. His grand and glorious reign lasted for an eternity of 17 months. Sorry, that's a bit of an awkward aside, but I had to kill the poor guy off at some point, and this seemed to be the least forced way to do it. Alright, back to the main story. Suseti I is now the pharaoh, and he's just conquered Syria. And it doesn't stop there. Seti's big victory is, at all places, Kadesh. The Kadesh we're talking about in this episode. So yeah, that's how it all ends. The Egyptians take back Kadesh under Seti I, they make peace with the Hittites, and then everybody has a huge dance party, and there's never violence in the Middle East again. Except that didn't happen. I mean, you knew that already. What you have to remind yourself of is that maintaining a large army hundreds of miles away from home is incredibly difficult and expensive, even today. Now imagine how difficult that was 3,000 years ago. Yeah. So after winning a great victory at Kadesh, and building a monument to himself which still exists today, Seti packed up most of his army, turned right around, and went straight back home, leaving only a few small garrisons behind. While Seti was carved from the mold of Thutmose III, he definitely didn't have the old dog's luck. What was acceptable occupation policy a few hundred years prior was now woefully inadequate for the precarious geopolitical situation of the age. When you steal territory from a massive expansionist empire right on your doorstep, a couple of garrisons just isn't going to cut it. This isn't really Seti's fault, but I once again must stress that for the Egyptians, Campaigning in the Levant was a largely unwieldy venture which forced them to stretch their forces thin. While the Hittites were literally right there, Kadesh, the rest of Syria, all of it was on their front doorstep. They could keep as many soldiers as they wanted for any given amount of time while keeping them easily supplied. Egypt simply didn't have that luxury. And so, after Seti left, the Hittites returned in full force, took back Kadesh, and pretty much recovered all their losses in no time flat. Some victory, huh? The rest of Seti's 11 or 15 year long reign, remember, hellish chronology here, was essentially defined by aggressive, expensive campaigning. While war against the Hittites generally concluded following his conquest and later loss of Kadesh, I've heard it said before that he and the Hittites came to a general understanding regarding the respective empire's borders, he then had to put down a massive force of Libyan invaders from the west. And, spoiler alert, these invaders continued to haunt the Egyptians long after Seti was dead and mummified, especially during the reign of his grandson, Meren Ptah. And, as I'm sure you guessed already, Seti dies. Uh, I mean, he is mortal after all. Around 1279 BC, and is succeeded by his son, Ramesses II. We're only five years away from the Battle of Kadesh. I promise we'll get there soon. Ramesses II is an absolutely fascinating figure. He's sort of a royal renaissance man. He built new cities, temples, monuments, presided over at least an unprecedented 13 said festivals held to honor his reign, a ceremony similar to the Egyptian Jubilee celebrations we see today, 
and had 103 children. You heard me right. 103. I can only imagine how awkward that made family reunions. Some parents can't remember one of their kids' names. Try remembering 103 and get back to me. So yeah, Ramesses II was incredibly fertile, incredibly long-lived. He died at the age of 90, after all. And, like dear old dad, incredibly homicidally determined to reassert Egyptian interests in the Levant. You know what that means, don't you? That's right. It's time for another protracted, bloody, absolutely useless war. <laughs> Only the tenth one this episode. His so-called first Syrian campaign occurred in the fourth year of his reign. We don't know all that much about it. The commemorative stele he erected in modern-day Beirut has weathered so much that practically only the year and Ramsey's name can be gathered from it, but it's likely that his forces conquered the Amuru kingdom, which was a vassal state of the Hittites at the time. Additionally, war might not be the best way to describe the campaign, given that it was probably little more than a glorified defection. The king of Amuru had made it clear that he wanted to be back under Egyptian hegemony, and his betrayal of the Hittites armed the pharaoh with a casus belli he lacked beforehand. By the way, we're now only one year away from the Battle of Kadesh. I did tell you we would get there soon. Something important to remember as we enter the fifth year of Ramesses II's reign, and consequently the Battle of Kadesh, is that Mr. High and Mighty Pharaoh was kind of a daddy's boy. He greatly admired his father for his military prowess, especially when it came to Seti's conquest of Kadesh, which, as I alluded to in the middle of this episode about 10 hours ago, two other pharaohs had tried and failed miserably to accomplish. And so it was that he resolved to do exactly what his father did before him. Ramesses II was going to raise a giant army, march up to the Levant, and beat the Hittites six ways to Sunday before triumphantly entering the city of Kadesh and building himself a monument dedicated to his own greatness. At least, that's what he thought was going to happen. The Egyptian preparations for the campaign were, in a word, immense. Ramesses, I'm just going to call him Ramesses from now on, by the way, you already know he's the second one, built an entire city in the Egyptian eastern delta called, appropriately, by Ramesses, or in English, the House of Ramesses. Have you gotten tired of hearing the name Ramesses yet? Anyway, the city was essentially one part luxury condo for the pharaoh, and one part massive Bronze Age military industrial complex, dedicated to mass producing weapons for the Kadesh campaign. And the numbers Pi Ramesses were putting up were incredibly impressive especially in a pre-industrial era. We're talking a thousand weapons a week, 250 chariots in half a month, and a thousand shields in a week and a half. The extent of the preparation is honestly quite a testament to Ramesses' organizational talent. Few others in the ancient world could even dream of pulling off such a feat. And then he waited for the omens to come in. 
This still is the Bronze Age, mind you, and Ramesses is explicitly ruling his subjects as a god-king. The idea of separating religion and state would have seemed ludicrous to a man in his position. It was necessary for him that the upcoming campaign was perceived by his people as an auspicious one. Not only was it good for morale, I mean, can you imagine how hard you'd fight if you knew God himself said you'd be victorious? But it also reinforced his image as a blessed figure leading Egypt to glory. So, in 1274 BC, when the good omens finally came in, Ramesses raised his army of over 20,000 back up again, rode his chariot through the gates of the city he so humbly named after himself, and marched back up north to finally finish his father's war. Alright, now that Ramesses has begun his mad dash to Kadesh, it's time to examine events from the Hittite perspective. Mu'atali II, remember him? It's okay if you don't, no one else does, was, in every sense of the word, Ramesses II's foil. As Ramesses built his shiny new city as a focal point for training, arming, and deploying his troops into the Levant, Mu'atali did the exact same thing. He even one-upped Ramesses in a sense. Mu'atali's new city of Tarhantasa became the official capital of the Hittite Empire. At the same time, Mu'atali focused on effectively reorganizing the Hittite Empire's various vassal states, massively increasing its available manpower for the inevitable clash of civilizations. By the time the Battle of Kadesh started, Mu'atali had as many as 18 allies prepared to fight alongside him. Perhaps the only truly questionable choice Mu'atali made prior to the encounter at Kadesh was his decision to recruit a fairly sizable number of mercenaries to bolster his military strength in the Levant. Now, on its face, this is a rational enough decision. I mean, why wouldn't you want to have an overwhelmingly more powerful army compared to that of your enemy? But at the same time, Muwatali depleted his treasury of valuable silver to create this private army. This meant, of course, that most of his soldiers were just going without pay for a majority of 1274 BC. And if there's anything soldiers historically have loved, it's going without pay for an extended amount of time in which they're still expected to fight and die proudly for their homeland. Now, granted, Muwatali did promise his men that they could plunder and pillage everything they wanted from the Egyptians if they won the upcoming war, but that's a dangerous situation to put yourself into. No war's outcome can ever be fully predicted, and if Muwatali were to lose, the consequences would be absolutely disastrous. There is almost nothing worse for a ruler to deal with than demoralized, unpaid soldiers looking for some sort of retribution. It was a risk Muwatali determined was acceptable to take. And so by the conclusion of his wartime preparations in the spring of 1274, he'd raised an army more than twice the size of Ramesses. The source I'm going on has Muwatali commanding an absolutely absurd 37,000 infantry and 3,500 chariots. And as Ramesses marched upwards, Muwatali made his way downwards to confront his new foe. Now is probably a good time to more comprehensively answer the question, why Kadesh? I mean, what was so important about this one city 
that it needed to be constantly warred over? And the answer is pretty deceptively simple. Hittite prosperity as a whole depended on control of two things, trade routes and metal sources. Kadesh was the Bronze Age Mediterranean trade center. Whoever controlled it had just secured themselves a lifetime of riches if they could hold on to it. Unlike the Egyptians, who had over time developed a frankly obsessive need to conquer Kadesh so they could honor their ancestors by carving hieroglyphs into a rock or something, the Hittite philosophy could best be described by the following quote from the Godfather. It's not personal, it's just business. And this is a recurring theme that'll pop up again and again as we talk about the Battle of Kadesh. The Egyptian leadership is almost constantly placed in a reactionary position. Their biggest blunders, in fact, came from how their undeniably ballooned egos were turned against them. The Hittites, on the other hand, were far more methodical and downright cunning in their preparations for war. But when it came to the actual fighting, they were quite literally inflexible. I'm proud to announce that at this point, we've actually reached the battle stage of the episode titled The Battle of Kadesh. That didn't take too long, did it? It's only been, what, like 12 hours since we started this thing? Ramesses' army had split into four groups, which for the sake of convenience, I'll refer to as legions, all named after a deity from the traditional Egyptian pantheon. At the head of the army, you had the Amun Legion, personally commanded by Ramesses, and behind them you had the Re Legion, the Sutek Legion, and the Ptah Legion, raised from Heliopolis, Pyramazes, and Memphis, respectively. They had no choice but to travel separately. An army of 20,000 marching hundreds of kilometers together would have quickly depleted the countryside by the time they made their way to Kadesh, which would have greatly weakened the Egyptian ability to resupply their forces. Given that Ramesses' Amun legion was all the way in the front, it should come as no surprise that they arrived at the scene first, stopping about a day's march away from Kadesh to set up camp. When they finally resumed their grueling march the next day, Ramesses and his men had what they believed to be an incredible stroke of luck. Two Shosu Bedouin tribesmen came before the pharaoh with seriously good news. When Ramesses asked them where Muwatali and his supersized Hittite army ended up, the Shosu tribesmen looked him dead in the eye and told him that the moment Muwatali heard the pharaoh and his army were marching north, the Hittite hegemon stopped dead in his tracks out of fright and remained a full 120 miles away with his army in Aleppo. Ramesses understandably rejoiced over this. Without Muwatali in his way, he wouldn't have to worry about some lengthy siege or incredibly brutal battle for control of Kadesh. He could practically walk right in, carve his name on a ceremonial stele, and then leave. And so as his men constructed a fortified camp northwest of Kadesh, the pharaoh probably paid little mind to his scouts as they surveyed the surrounding area. That is, until they brought back two captured Hittite scouts they'd found while conducting their surveillance mission. At first, the scouts refused to talk, but after receiving a particularly brutal beating from the Egyptians, they routed out their countrymen. Muwatali wasn't 120 miles away from the Egyptian camp, he was more like two, 
And those Shosu tribesmen who'd effectively convinced Ramses he was in the clear were actually Hittite agents who deliberately misled him. Talk about a rude awakening. Remember, Ramses only had one legion with him. So at this point he was essentially cut off from the rest of his army by a force twice the size of all four of his legions put together. When only minutes before he dreamt of absolute victory over his kingdom's enemies, Ramesses' own complete and utter annihilation was beginning to feel inevitable at this point. But one thing Ramesses had going for him was that he wasn't the type of man who gave up so easily, no matter how badly the cards were stacked against him. So, ordering his vizier to call upon the Ray Legion about six and a half miles away from his camp, Ramesses II prepared for a fight to the death. By the time his men in the Ray Legion heard of Ramesses' predicament, they ran like hell to get to their pharaoh in time. The officers urged on their soldiers by singing marching chants and blowing battle trumpets, and even crossing the formidable Orontes River became no issue to the legion in this sort of widespread adrenaline rush. And as they pushed forward, Ramesses' vizier raced backwards to the Ptah legion, which was even further away from the clash. And then, once again, disaster struck. Hard. Around midday, as the Ray Legion continued to barrel ahead towards their pharaoh, their flank was assaulted by Hittite war chariots. This was by no means a pretty sight. The closest thing I can compare a Hittite war chariot to is a Bronze Age tank, and as hundreds of these smashed into the Ray Legion's flank, the battle must have already seemed lost for the Egyptians. Most of their soldiers didn't even have time to react. By the time the Egyptians noticed the chariots were there, the Hittite warriors' long spears had already pierced through the weak spots in their armor and tore into them, their bodies then being unceremoniously trampled by horse hooves and chariot wheels. If you somehow managed to survive the first wave of attacks, there was no time for foolhardy heroism. You just fled. And so now a quarter of Ramses' forces are out of commission, either having been mashed into a bloody pulp in the sands below, or fleeing far away from the main action. But like I said, the man was lucky. While most of the Ray Legion was annihilated, its chariots at the front of the column had survived, and then drove off as quickly as possible to warn their supreme commander of his impending doom. And given that Egyptian chariots were lighter and faster, it should come as no surprise that they made it to camp just before the Hittite tanks slammed into Ramses' shield wall. The head start, however small, gave Ramesses' forces the time they needed to organize a somewhat competent defense. While the Hittite chariots had managed to blast through the Egyptian camp's defenses with ease, the sheer number of obstacles in their way greatly slowed the vehicles down, allowing the camp's defenders to finally start fighting back. And Ramesses' men were no pushovers. Realizing quickly that the Hittite chariots were both quite slow to begin with, and also practically reduced to sitting ducks as they trudged through the camp, the soldiers of the Amun Legion went from chariot to chariot, spearing and slashing at the hapless crewmen. But unfortunately for them, this didn't really stop the Hittite momentum. They had just absolutely crushed the Rare Legion, after all, and as more chariots poured in, their overwhelming numbers nullified the potential of the nascent Egyptian comeback. And it's in this moment, perhaps at the zenith of the Hittite performance during the Battle of Kadesh, 
that they and their allies make a big mistake they can't bounce back from. Instead of pushing forward to slaughter their enemy, they just start plundering the camp. And this is a critical error long in the making. Remember how I told you Muwatali offered his soldiers all the Egyptian plunder their Anatolian hearts desired in lieu of pay because, you know, he had to buy off all those mercenaries somehow? Well, in the middle of the battle, they decided to take him up on that offer. And now, instead of finishing the job, I mean, Ramses is literally right there. The Hittite chariots break formation, and the charioteers just try to snatch anything they can get their hands on. Ramesses watches as the Hittites make this huge blunder and suddenly gets an idea. Now, from his perspective, he's still very much between a rock and a hard place. A fourth of his army is dead or simply gone. His entire camp is surrounded by the enemy. And, to make matters worse, he brought his entire family to the battle. So now the rest of his dynasty is trapped alongside him. But now he knows that not all is lost. So, in true action movie fashion, he arms himself to the teeth, prepared to finally make his decisive move, and gathered any chariot crews left to start his great counteroffensive against the Hittites. Remember how I said Egyptian chariots were lighter than the Hittite ones? That was an understatement. I mean, these things were seriously advanced. They had shock absorbers, anti-roll bars, a rear-view mirror, and they could turn at much sharper angles compared to their Hittite counterparts, which were big, bulky, and practically impossible to maneuver. Sure, the Hittite chariots could fit three men in them, as opposed to the Egyptians too, but they were designed for shock attacks, and the longer they stayed put in the battlefield, the more vulnerable they became, especially to arrow fire. This is going to become important in about five seconds. You see, the Egyptian composite bow was a thing of beauty. A skilled enough archer could fire it upwards of 500 feet away to hit a target, and, surprise surprise, it was the main weapon of an Egyptian charioteer. So even though the Amun division was greatly outnumbered as it began its counterattack, their speed and use of the composite bow gave them a much needed element of surprise. And as they approached the Hittites, the Egyptians rained down hell upon their Anatolian enemies. Remember, at this point the Hittites had turned their backs away from the Egyptian chariots because they were too busy fighting over, you know, who'd take the pharaoh's golden bedpan or whatever. So as the arrows crashed into their chariots, they had absolutely no idea what was going on. Most of the crewmen literally died without knowing what hit them. The ones that managed to somehow veer their bulky chariots around in a frankly pathetic attempt to counter the Egyptian counterattack, couldn't even get close enough to engage in combat. They just had the small luxury of dying a few seconds later than the others. The Hittite chariots who were out of range of the Egyptian chariots watched in horror as their comrades were cut down. Just a few minutes ago, victory seemed assured, and now this small Egyptian force was absolutely crushing them. So the survivors wheeled around their practically immobile chariots and made a mad dash out of there. And now, the hunters had become the hunted. Dramatic, right? The problem the Hittites now ran into was that the driving force behind a chariot is a living thing. I mean, those poor horses don't run on some sort of infinite energy glitch. 
and as the battle carried on and grew even more severe, the Hittite horses became incredibly tired. Remember, they'd been pulling around the army constantly since the Rea division was annihilated at the confrontation's very start. The Egyptian horses, on the other hand, had a far lighter load to bear, and had been in action for a far shorter period. So as the Hittites are trying desperately to flee to the river, their horses are trying to do the opposite. They want to stop and rest. And hey, here's a fun fact. As his army is getting completely annihilated by like six Egyptian chariots, Muwatali is watching all of it happen from a vantage point near Kadesh. And he was getting frustrated. Incredibly frustrated. His elite chariot force had just been undone in rapid fashion and he realized the men he had left out in the field would probably all get killed before they could make it back across the river. So he had to improvise. He turned to the men around him, a bunch of aristocrats, relatives, and allied commanders, and told them to make a diversionary attack on the Egyptians by the Orontes River. The improvised force Muatali organized raced down for Ramesses' camp. Remember, Ramesses' family, including his sons, the literal continuation of his royal bloodline, are still there. And Muatali hoped the attack would force Ramesses to withdraw, turn back around to defend the camp, and afford the Hittites enough time to come up with a counterattack. But Ramesses had another trick up his sleeve. He'd sent for an elite detachment of warriors known as the Nayarin to aid him in his Kadesh campaign. And just as Muatali's diversionary force arrived at the camp, so did the Nayarin. And in what was essentially a repetition of the earlier engagement, the Nayarin rained down arrows upon the Hittite diversionary force, which promptly turned their own big bulky chariots around and fled right back to Muwatali, who at this point was probably internally and externally screaming. As the diversionary force fled back to the Orontes, Ramesses turned around with his own force to attack them. He still very much thought his family was in peril. By the time he got there, it was an absolute massacre. The combined strength of the Amun division and the Nayarin force overwhelmed the Hittite survivors, who at this point had abandoned all pretense of an orderly retreat. The crewmen leapt from their chariots into the river, and the ones who couldn't make the jump found themselves slammed with the pointy end of an Egyptian sword. The ones that made it into the river weren't much luckier. Not only was there a strong current, Many were wearing heavy armor, so down below the surface they went, never to rise again. Now it was the Egyptian forces' turn to pillage and plunder, and by plunder, I mean the pharaoh's men just robbed a few thousand corpses of their possessions. Remember earlier in the episode when I mentioned how the Battle of Megiddo was the source of history's first body count? Did you ever wonder just how the Egyptians kept a body count? Fun fact! They severed their dead enemies' hands, counted them all up, and then kept them as war trophies. And at Kadesh, that's exactly what they did. It's really a testament to the humane nature of Bronze Age combat. The aftermath of Kadesh was pretty rough for the Hittites. Not only was their chariot army totally blown out of the water, Muatali had also suffered a great personal loss. Two of his brothers had been killed in action. But... As ludicrous as it may sound, it wasn't all bad for him. The Hittite infantry hadn't fought at all during the battle, so it was still completely intact and far larger 
than the pitiable Egyptian infantry force. And even better, Muatali's men still controlled Kadesh. Even though the Egyptians now controlled the battlefield and reinforcers from the Patah Legion had finally shown up, Ramesses knew full well that he didn't have the men or the resources to sustain a long siege of Kadesh. So he took the rest of his army, turned right back around, and marched home. All the while claiming to anyone who'd listen that victory was his. And, spoiler alert, Muatali also claimed victory from within the relative safety of the walls of Kadesh. Which leads to the obvious question. Who was right? Was it Ramesses, or was it Muatali? And the answer is... Yes. If we're talking about the actual battle itself, it was an outright defeat for the Hittites. They made key strategic blunders, were embarrassingly overwhelmed by a far smaller force, and ended the engagement either getting slammed by Egyptian arrows or drowning into the river. But at the same time, this was pretty much a textbook Pyrrhic victory for Ramesses and the Egyptians. Two of his legions had been decimated. The Hittites still maintained a significant numerical advantage, and, most importantly, Ramesses couldn't take the city. That was literally the entire point of the battle, and the Egyptians failed. There's no other way around it. And remember all those territorial gains Ramesses had made? The ones during his first Syrian campaign the year before, when the king of Amuru surrendered to him? Yeah, those were all undone the second his forces got back to Egypt. Muatali simply marched back down into the Levant and took back all the territory in Syria he'd lost. When you look at it that way, it's a pretty disastrous end for the Egyptians. Even Ramesses' dad was at least able to take Kadesh without much trouble. But there's an oddly happy ending to this story. In the aftermath of the encounter at Kadesh, both sides had become pretty war-weary. The Hittite focus on beating back the Egyptians had left them vulnerable to attack from the Assyrian Empire, forcing them to divert resources away from the Levant. As for Ramesses and his army, they simply lacked the logistical capabilities needed to re-enter northern Syria. So, the two tired nations came together some 16 years later, in 1258 BC, and signed a peace treaty. The world's first in existence. Both the Egyptian and the Hittite versions survive, and they're identical, save for one key difference. The Egyptian version of the treaty says the Hittites sued for peace, while the Hittites insist that it was the Egyptians who came begging for peace. That's right, my friends. Even in peace, the two empires found themselves repeating the age-old adage found in many a playground brawl. He started it first. No, he started it first. That's all for this week. Thanks for riding it out with me. Now it's time for my unrehearsed remarks. I wanted to first start out by thanking my mom, who let me record this in the kitchen. And God bless her, I have no idea how she didn't lose her mind as she listened to me blab on and on about the same boring, repetitive subjects. So thank you for that, Mom. And then secondly, I want to thank all my friends who over the past three days followed that at Tales from the Bronze Age Instagram account. That meant a lot to me to see. 
it was just really great that, you know, I knew these people had my back. Thank you so much again for supporting me. I know this episode's like a day late. I promise, promise, promise that next week's will arrive on time. I haven't really settled on a theme yet, but I do expect it to be a little shorter than this week's. I hope you enjoy it. It should be arriving to you around Friday or Saturday. And I really hope that this series can continue for a long time. It's been a lot of fun recording it. I know it's really low budget. I know it's probably going to sound terrible. But I had a ton of fun researching, writing, and then recording this episode. So thanks so much. That's all for this week again. And I'll see you around next time when I'll be telling you some more Tales from the Bronze Age.